This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Call Your Monster. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm a writer in Los Angeles, and I am a Jewish guy who's a fan of spooky things. Wow. Uh, well, my name is Jen. I am also a writer living in Los Angeles. I also happen to be Jewish, and I do like my fair share of spooky things. Oh, my God. However did we come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> So today, our first ever episode, we are going to be talking about uh, things that drink your blood, um, which is just a fun way to kick things off. I think the way we're just generally going to break these things down is we'll talk about the Jewish iteration of, in this case, the things that drink blood, and then we'll talk about other cultures and their version of things that drink blood. So what, uh, what I learned when... I was doing research on this was that there are two different types of Jewish vampires. Um, and then another thing, which is kind of a vampire, but isn't. So uh, the like typical vampire that a lot of people associate as being vampires is something called the Aluka uh, or Aluka. I don't know. Um, all I saw was a strange alliteration, so it was not <laughs> super clear. I believe it. It sounds Hebrew. There we go. Yeah, I'm just going to add a ch into everything. Um, so uh, the original Jewish vampire appears in Proverbs 30.15, and it's, uh, it refers to an alucha, which kind of translates to a leech um, as this entity of like pure ravenous hunger uh, that sees itself as, you know, like it doesn't necessarily see itself as evil, but it super is. There's a couple of different ideas as to how they're made, but the main idea is they're made by Lilith, who we're going to talk about later, but Lilith apparently uses uh, men's wasted semen uh, to make vampires, and it's a little bit unclear because that's also sometimes conflated with the other type of Jewish vampires, which we'll get into in a minute. And there's also interpretations of a passage in the Midrash Shmuel, uh, which is, for those not in the know, it's like a literary analysis of the book of Samuel or Shmuel, uh, depending on how Yiddish you're feeling that day. <laughs> so they stuffed a bunch of vampires under the bed to protect David from Saul's followers. That would make me feel safe. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. It's like it's like stuffing the pillows under yeah. the bed to be like, I'm sneaking out tonight. Nobody's gonna catch me. Uh, yeah, that vampires as sort of a like a pull to sneaky on you uh, is a little bit different from normal vampire mythology. But you can you can identify these vampires by the fact that they have teeth that are swords and their jaws are set with knives, which kind of feels redundant, uh, to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind, which is a direct translation, which feels like a weird thing to say because translations are like, eh, who really speaks Aramaic anymore? No one, it's a dead language. So in Book of Solomon though, which is technically not canon. This is Jewish fanfic. Yeah, this is Jewish <laughs> really fanfic. It's departing here. <laughs> I mean, like, what isn't Jewish? I feel like even the Torah is Jewish fanfic yeah. at this point. So Solomon was given this ring, 
uh, by the angel Michael to command the demons, and Solomon then gave this ring to a boy who was being sort of haunted by this demon, Orneus, uh, who stole half his food and half his pay, which feels different from his blood, but apparently isn't, uh, according to a bunch of rabbis, which doesn't play into stereotypes at all. <laughs> of course not. Um, but he gave, the, he gave the boy this ring, and then the boy chucked it at Orneus, which put Orneus under Solomon's control. And then Solomon then gave the ring to Orneus and was like, you got to go to the king of demons and chuck the ring at the king of demons. Orneus chucked the ring at the king of demons. And that is how Solomon then like reigned supreme over demons, but also possibly vampires to build the temple, which is super weird. So it feels like in a lot of, you know, these iterations of Jewish vampires, they're kind of conflated with demons, which is sort of a broader subject, which we'll get into in various episodes are going to pop up a lot. You know what you're getting into when you're listening to this podcast. There are a lot more demons in Jewish folklore than you would expect. We'll yes. just say that here and now. They're, they're everywhere, man. They're, they're coming for you. So the other type of Jewish vampires are, uh, and I'm going to say this with as French an accent as possible, the estriers. Croissant. <laughs> the croissant, yeah. <laughs> Don't mind me. They're the croissant of the vampire world. Uh, so estriers uh, come from the French word for night, which was strix, which comes from the Latin word for a screech owl. Um, and estriers are similar to succubi. Some people conflate the two, but that's also up for debate, much like everything. In theory, they were created the night before the first Sabbath, which means that much like a lot of other monsters we'll come across, they can shapeshift. Some idea apart from that is that, uh, at least according to Rabbi Menachim Zioni, who was a Kabbalist in the 15th century, they, much like other monsters, were actually uh, they were men and women who had built the Tower of Babel and then God cursed them to turn into monsters for their hubris. Um, but unlike some of those other monsters, estries have to be women. Uh, they also feed on the blood of the living. So they can't, they aren't like carrion or anything like that. Or carrion? What the hell am I looking for? Scavengers? Yeah. There we go. I was a bio major once. Um, Clearly not anymore. So they have to feed on the blood of the living and they can fly, but they fly using their hair, which feels great for like a graphic novel, but also really inconvenient. Gotta let your hair down. I like it. Honestly, that feels like appropriate. Cause like at the time that like all of these were being written, there's this rule called uh, perua, which is like keeping your hair up. Uh, and if you don't keep your hair up and you're married, that's grounds for divorce. But with uh, estries, they have to loosen their hair and they have to have loose hair in order to fly. But if you bind their hair, they can't fly and they have to do what, you're, what you tell them to. And we sort of learned, we learned about estries mostly from this book called the Sefer Hasidim which was a book written in the 13th century about the lives of Jews in the 11 and 1200s. And it was predominantly written by Judah ben Samuel of Regensburg, uh, who was descended from a long line of Northern Italian Kabbalists. So with estries though, if you ever come across one, should you ever be so unfortunate, there are a couple of things that you should know. You cannot cure them. They are who they are, let them live, Uh, but whatever you do, don't bless them, because then you will also be as evil as they are. It also doesn't really feel like they're evil. It just feels like they're... It feels like they're just kind of... Yeah, exactly. Being women. <laughs> they're just trying to live their best on dead lives. Let really. them fly. <laughs> but you can, if you're so inclined, you can heal them, either letting them drink from the blood of the living, uh, or if you have 
accidentally injured them, uh, then you can give them challah and salt, and that will heal them. If they have injured you, uh, call your attorney or eat challah and salt yourself. They are weak to daylight, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same like burst into flames thing or get sparkly skin as other contemporary vampires. As I mentioned, you can bind their hair to keep them grounded, and you can kill them the way that you would normally kill a person, but they'll come right back. So when you bury them, you have to either cut off their head or burn them, or you have to pack their mouth filled with dirt, which feels weird. I don't know why the dirt thing. I mean, like, keeps them from biting, but also... If they're burned or decapitated, do you still need to? Right. I mean, it's like a little anticlimactic, really. <laughs> Your decapitation, burning to death, or burning the body, rather, and just putting some dirt in there. Yeah, just a little Thanksgiving yeah, a little stuffing going on yeah. in there. <laughs> and then the last type of, like, blood-sucking Jewish goober that we're going to talk about is the bruxa, which is a bird that sucks goat milk, which is not vampiric, or human blood at night, which is... So there's also Portuguese version of the Bruxa that is a shape-shifting witch, um, which kind of seems like it was born from the Jewish Bruxa myth and then became, you know, the Portuguese Bruxa and the Spanish Bruja. So there's a chance that Jewish literature inspired the Bruja, but that that also feels weird to say. <laughs> right. But what doesn't feel weird to say is the fact that there is, in fact, uh, a bird in real life that drinks blood and it's called the vampire finch and it is super weird to look at pictures of it because it's super cute and then it's also covered in blood so enjoy that maybe i'll post it on the instagram that feels yeah. like good cross promotion yeah i love that Obviously, the vampire myth is hardly unique to Judaism. Um, pretty much, I don't know if I can say every culture, but a shit ton of cultures. A lot of cultures. It's a scientific <laughs> Yes, that is the technical term. Uh, have stories about these bloodthirsty creatures, humanoid creatures, coming back from the dead to prey on the litters. The Penangalon, and I'm so sorry if I'm saying that incorrectly, from Malaysia, um, which sort of like estries really, or succubi appears as this young beautiful woman but at night her head detaches from her body trailing her entrails and flies around to look for children to devour honestly that just feels like bad design because then you can just like they can grab the entrails and just pluck them out of the sky although i mean if i saw that i don't think i'd want to touch it i think i would want to run the opposite direction okay that's fair point well made but yeah, good point. There is a uh, there's a clear weakness there. It's a weird little Malaysian uh, eating balloon. Yeah, yeah, with a very pretty face. Yeah, um, yeah, very scary. Don't like that. Uh, in China, you've got the Jiangxi, which is a hopping vampire. Um, and what I love about this, so basically, they're they're kind of zombies slash vampires, but they have these like rigid zombie like movements where they kind of have to because they aren't super nimble they sort of have to hop towards their prey before sucking the blood and devouring them um how they're created sort of depends on the version of the myth it's either you know somebody who died from a violent death be it suicide hanging drowning so that their soul can't leave their body or it's a person who didn't receive a proper burial which is kind of similar to the estuary myth but they're usually depicted in these uniforms from the Qing dynasty and it's possibly because, and actually the origin of the Jiangxi myth is possibly tied to the fact that during this time in the Qing dynasty, 
there were these increased efforts to return bodies of deceased workers back to their birthplace. And there were these corpse drivers, basically, who were hired to bring these people home. And they would, of course, move in the dead of night. And the corpse drivers would transport the bodies of the dead on these bamboo poles and kind of bounce them along. So from a distance, it lent the corpses basically the appearance of moving on their own accord and just sort of bouncing down the road. How far was this trip? Like, was it like hundreds of miles of just a bouncing body? I, I mean, it can't have been, right? Like, it must have been like, I don't know. Who, what do I know? It must have been like wagons, and then maybe as they got close, they just started bouncing these bodies <laughs> along. But then, of course, naturally, some people, even if they saw the corpse drivers from afar, they believed that the corpse drivers themselves were necromancers who were sort of guiding these bodies to hop home on their own accord, which I think is super cool. They could also be multi-hyphenates. They could be corpse drivers and necromancers. You know yeah, we're all trying to get by here. Maybe the corpse driver thing is like the day job night job the gig um, economy is doing terrible things to the corpse driver yeah. community <laughs> it's very hard to be a necromancer these days you know? <laughs> this one i don't have as much info on but i just think it's really fun it is the yara mayahu from australia which is a sort of lazy tree dwelling vampire that just kind of hangs out in fig trees waits for somebody to pass by and then jumps down sucks out their blood with these octopus-like suckers. I just think that one's fun. That feels pretty mild for Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a fun name, though. That feels very Australian. Another fun one that's also a woman is the Siva Tateo. It's an Aztec vampire uh, who was once a beautiful noble woman, or they were once beautiful noble women who died in childbirth, as one, as one did back in the day, fairly often across cultures. And now these women sort of return from the dead as these hideous pale creatures who haunt crossroads and feed upon children. Um, like a lot of depictions of vampires or blood-sucking creatures, there's a lot of overlap with witches. Uh, some depictions of the Siva Tateo even include brooms, and kind of similar to Lilith and some of the other Jewish bloodsuckers, um, in some versions of the legend, they could reproduce with human men. Well, so all of those sound really interesting uh, and definitely not what I think a lot of people are used to in terms of at least Western society's version of vampires. So why don't you tell us more about those? Yes. Uh, you're probably most familiar with this classic Western depiction of the vampire, sort of a la Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I just found out was published in 1897. I don't know why I thought it happened so much sooner than that. Um, I don't know. Abraham just... Van Helsing high off his ass on the cocaine Coca-Cola. Yeah, and what did you say earlier? Where... Oh, yeah, he could be wearing <laughs> Levi jeans and playing Nintendo uh, game cards. Time is weird. Time is very weird. Uh, yeah, so just three years before the, the good old 20th century, Dracula came out. Still very gothic. And as you may or may not know stoker's dracula was in part inspired by a real guy the romanian count vlad the impaler also known as vlad dracula which basically just means vlad son of dracul this guy was known for displaying the impaled bodies of his enemies outside his home just a nice look like the the pink flamingo <laughs> of his day as one does that you know he wasn't actually sucking blood but i i understand why people might get a negative perception <laughs> just maybe moving along moving along from vlad dracula um so stoker's dracula 
the description is sort of very much informed what we see later in film depictions of Dracula. In the book, he's described one way, sort of with this pale skin, hooked nose, bushy hair. You can sort of see where we're going with this <laughs> and the how it's entwined with anti-Semitic stereotypes. Uh, yeah. Uh, loves his money. He's a degenerate. He has an aversion to crosses. We'll come back to that. A lot of these visual signifiers as well that we think of when we think about vampires actually come not from Stoker, but come later with the 1931 film adaptation of Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi, where he's got this slicked back hair, he's got the pointy teeth, the makeup. He's wearing a six-sided pendant. Hmm. What? Interesting. Uh, but yeah, I guess what I'm getting at here, we know a lot of this stuff. At least I'm thinking that probably if you're a nerd and you're listening to this podcast, you're at least a little bit familiar with uh, vampires, maybe. Um, but yes, so sort of what I'm getting at here is a lot of we think what we think of when we think of the Western vampire is uncomfortably uh, similar with classic European anti-Semitic tropes. Right down to this idea of drinking the blood of victims, which is possibly the most distinct characteristic of the Western vampire, um, kind of ties in with this fun anti-Semitic conspiracy theory called blood libel. Uh, which is basically this belief that Jews sacrifice Christian children and use their blood for rituals such as baking matzah. And this is an idea that dates back to the Middle Ages and sort of informed a lot of the othering of Jews kind of just from that time forward, really. It doesn't really make sense, this idea of blood libel. Um, Leviticus 7.26-27 to expressly prohibits Jews from drinking blood. It's not kosher at all. But hey, whatever. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this, but your inner Hermione just came out very strong. I've got an in it's not even an inner Hermione, really. I just am Hermione, I think, is what it is. That's fair. I don't know. I don't believe that any Jews would ever put blood in matzah, but I don't know where gefilte fish comes from. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, blood matzah might taste a little better. That's a little bit of salt to it. <laughs> Get your iron. Yeah. We yeah. are very iron deficient. Ah, shit. That plays into the stereotypes, too. Oh, God damn. <laughs> and we do burn so easily in the sun. We do. I mean, honestly, I can't say I've never been harmed by daylight. But I also did want to mention Nosferatu. Um, even though Murnau himself wasn't necessarily an anti-Semite, I should say, too. Nosferatu, 1922, German film. Obviously, that's interesting to have this film coming out in between both world wars from Germany. Um, and I'm not saying Nosferatu is an anti-Semitic film, but the depiction of Nosferatu with these pointed fingers, the sharp teeth. Why did I write ample skin? <laughs> I don't really know what I was getting at. Just a lot of loose skin. <laughs> Can you tell I was uh, writing some of these notes late at night and it got, got a little bit stream of consciousness? But just to see this very classically anti-Semitic depiction of a vampire coming out of pre-World War II Germany is interesting and raises some questions. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, namely, why? Well, and I think it's also sort of interesting to see this Western depiction of you know, vampires as this analog for Jewish stereotypes, when a lot of Jewish monsters themselves are also Jewish, where it feels like we 
we kind of have a tendency to worry about ourselves as being seen as the other, whereas everybody else is like, no, you are. Which, like, every now and then I'm like, is that really still true? And then I get anti-Semitic propaganda on my car. So, you know, maybe it is. Yeah. No, and, to- and that's what I think is so... This is part of thesis for doing this podcast. Just this idea, you know, this this intersection of Jewish folklore and, like, the monsters that we fear as Jews, but also the way in which we fear being seen as monsters ourselves. And you could see so much of that across Jewish folklore, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Same here, which is why we hope you uh, tune in next week for the next episode of Call Your Monster. But until then, stay safe out there. Don't get bitten by any vampires or vampire finches. Yeah, they're coming for you. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at CallYourMonsterPod, where we'll have a glossary of words we used this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week.